This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, where you can meet like-minded people fighting for a new vision of aging. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Help me in welcoming the newest members of this exclusive club. The latest restaurants to make it into Toronto's Michelin Guide were unveiled with great fanfare this week. We'll look at what's behind the hype and with growing evidence of the importance of the gut microbiome, we follow one woman's journey with fecal transplants as a possible cure. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. An Ontario Superior Court justice has certified a class action lawsuit alleging false advertising on cold FX products in Canada. The suit is filed against Bosch Health Canada and Valiant Canada, and it seeks to compensate anyone who bought the products. The suit alleges the two companies made false and misleading claims that the product had clinically proven ingredients and a clinically proven formula. Four million Americans over 65 have $54 billion worth of unpaid medical bills, even though almost all have Medicare and nearly half pay for a second layer of private insurance. That's up 20% from 2020 when older adults made fewer doctor visits due to COVID. A big reason is billing errors forcing seniors into endless battles with customer service representatives and bill collectors. Overall, the research group KFF estimates almost $200 billion in medical debt is faced by Americans of all ages. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has updated labels on Ozempic and similar semaglutide drugs with warnings of a possible side effect blocked intestines. The diabetes drug used by many to lose weight is linked to the condition called ileus, but the health agency stopped short of directly blaming the potentially life-threatening condition on the drug. The FDA has received almost 9,000 reports of gastrointestinal disorders after the use of both Ozempic and Wagovi. Retirement winds up being more of a disappointment than a delight, according to a new study by British market research firm OnePoll. It finds the average retiree grows bored after just one year of no employment, and two-thirds of retirees feel part-time work would give them a renewed sense of purpose. Three of the most common words used to describe retirement by respondents were boring, lonely, and quiet, and that this major life change is simply too much for some. Nearly 3 in 10 said they have more time to themselves than they anticipated when they retired. 
I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. So with one Michelin star, the new recruits. The restaurants that made it into this year's Michelin Guide were announced with great fanfare this week. But what is the benefit and what is the cost of that designation? I checked in with food writer and consultant Corey Mintz, who is something of a contrarian when it comes to the hype around the world-famous Michelin stars. Toronto's need for external validation is, of course, historical and endless. That's not something that's ever going to go away. And it's probably part of what fueled this uh, uh, selection by the Michelin organization, because they, they don't totally so self-select. They are uh, pitched and lobbied by cities around the world who say, come to us, um, bestow your approval and your awards. And with it, we hope to reap the um, the increased uh, tourism that goes with it. I do think it uh, has a clear benefit, and I'm, I'm sure uh, the restaurants that are noted and the city in general can can relate uh, a percentage increase in revenue towards the recognition. Um, but I think overall, I'm not a fan of awards in the restaurant sphere at all. And I think this particular one puts uh, undue and unrealistic pressure on a system that is already not unable to sustain uh, the pressure it has. My understanding is that getting a Michelin star uh, is said to increase business, what, by about 20%? For some restaurants, that means increased traffic. For the restaurants that are already at the top of their game within their city, that are already fully booked out, right? It takes months to get a reservation, that kind of Restaurant, well, they can't um, accommodate increased traffic, but what they can do and what they do, according to people I speak with, is increase prices, right? And instead of saying, oh, great, we've got 20% more people come through the door, they say, um, there's more demand, there's more competition, great, we have justification for increasing our prices 20%. And that's great for them, but it's not terrific, really, for the regulars who put them on the map. The word is that incre- it increases costs for the restaurants as they're trying to maintain their Michelin stars and uh, they feel like they need to have better everything, you know, from the linens and the china, and uh, it puts uh, an increased stress and possibly, I don't know, does it make them feel that they have to get more qualified staff that are paid more? (laughs) Well, let me pull my favorite word out of your statement and put the emphasis on that, stress. It's not that the restaurant says we want to achieve this star or we want to maintain the star and therefore we'll spend more money to maintain it. They say to the existing staff, we want to be recognized. And if we have been recognized, we need to maintain that at all costs. We need to be the best. So you need to work harder. That's how the hierarchy of pressure goes. And that's what I say when I mean pressure, the kind of systemic abuse that restaurants have classically been rate, uh, 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 run on, That is how you achieve the kind of food and service that earns these kind of awards. And these awards, um, the the, the Michelin organization in particular, putting aside other international bodies, um, they have some form of criteria they explain to the public, but it's an opaque system. They list, you know, how well is this restaurant executing the chef's vision or seasonality, things like that. 
treatment of staff, labor, fair compensation, mental health employees are nowhere on this list. And I'm sure you can find the examples there have been, like the chef in France who committed suicide for fear of losing a star. This is coming at a time when there's a big drop here in Toronto in the number of people eating in. Uh, Some restaurants are talking of uh, drops that are up to 40%. Is this going to address that situation for people? The Michelin star thing is, it's always going to be beneficial for those who can't afford it. But that is, you know, as we head into a recession, going to be an increasingly narrow percentage of the dining public. And I was a restaurant critic the last time we had a recession, the global recession of 2008. And I remember an overnight sea change from dining in the city's, you know, quote unquote, best restaurants, the places that were filled with uh, Bay Street uh, lawyers and investment bankers and the kind of people who have expense accounts and, you know, 200 seat rooms filled at lunchtime to sitting in those same rooms uh, a week later, and they were empty. It happened before, and every economist is saying we're heading in the same direction. So the um, recognition from Michelin is great for those who can still afford those things, but I think we're looking to be heading into a period where all restaurants have to figure out a new game, have to pivot a little bit, adapt their their service, their menu offerings in order to, to cater to a public that I think is changing what they do with their discretionary dining budget. Corey Mintz, thanks so much for that. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was food writer and consultant Corey Mintz. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, moving to the back end of the food we eat, we follow one woman's journey with fecal transplants as a possible cure for gastrointestinal disease. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Brought to you by CARP, fighting against ageism in the workplace and the marketplace. Find out more at carp.ca. This is my life with colitis, an autoimmune disease that attacks the colon. Each year it gets worse and there's no cure. Or is there? Fecal microbiota transplant taking healthy poop and putting it into the butt of a sick patient. That's a clip from filmmaker Saffron Cassidy's Designer Shit, a documentary which follows her years-long effort to cure her ulcerative colitis with fecal transplants, with her husband Al as the donor. The transplants have become mainstream as a treatment for C. difficile, and trials are underway to test their efficacy for everything from irritable bowel syndrome to depression. I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis in my early 20s. I'm in my mid-30s now, so it's been a while. And ulcerative colitis is an autoimmune condition in which the uh, immune system attacks the colon. So symptoms include, you know, this kind of painful ulcers along the colon. You can have cramps. Sorry to be graphic, but, you know, diarrhea, some blood mucus, all this really gross kind of symptoms that people don't like to talk about. And I had been suffering from this illness for a while. I was on medications that worked really well in the beginning, but over time, 
kind of lost their effectiveness. I was having more bad days than good days. And um, I was looking for solutions. I heard about something called fecal microbiota transplant, which is a procedure where you take stool from a healthy donor and you blend it up and you get it into the gut of a sick patient. And I was seeing some interesting results, some anecdotal, some from clinical trials of how this treatment could potentially treat my condition. Now, where did you get this information from? Was it from uh, medical authorities or was it kind of, you know, out there on the internet? It started with an anecdote. It was a friend of a friend who performed this procedure DIY uh, using his mother as a donor. He was severely ill with Crohn's disease at the time and in and out of hospital and facing uh, surgery to remove his entire colon. And he decided before surgery to try this and he had miraculous results. So, you know, as somebody who was really struggling at the time, his story offered me such hope. I looked into the data after that. I looked at the clinical trials that were going on and I found that the results were promising that in the clinical trials, about 25 to 30% of ulcerative colitis were seeing positive improvement to their symptoms using this treatment. Where were these clinical trials conducted and, and how many uh, patients did they involve? One of the first clinical trials, actually, I think it was the first clinical trial for fecal transplant for ulcerative colitis was conducted at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. And that study is still ongoing. Why did you choose to pursue this outside of what I'd call the medical establishment, outside of this clinical trial? This was, you ended up doing this as a do-it-yourself job. I did. So fecal transplant right now is um, under clinical investigation. So the only way to access it in North America, this goes for the U.S. and Canada, is through a clinical trial. There's an exception. C. difficile, if you have a C. difficile infection, you can get access to this treatment. But for other conditions for which it's still kind of being researched, you can't just go to a clinic and pay somebody to do this. Um, You can't even really involve your doctor. Doctors are under strict rules that they're not supposed to help a patient who wants to experiment on their own. You're supposed to direct them to clinical trial. So why Um, didn't you go to a clinical trial? I didn't have one near me at the time. I didn't live anywhere near Hamilton, and uh, yeah, I didn't have access. So who was your donor? I ended up using my partner, who is now my husband, as my stool donor. I looked up what criteria was needed to be a stool donor in these clinical trials, and it's a laundry list. Like You have to be a health superstar with no history of any kind of illness or you know depression, anxiety, no allergies, no history of antibiotic use, et cetera, et cetera. And um, my husband happens to be a health superstar. He kind of matched all the criteria on the list. In the documentary, we see the preps and everything. I'm wondering if I even want to ask you about it because it's it's kind of gross. <laughs> it's very gross. It's definitely not for the faint of heart. I mean... It's it's pretty straightforward, even in the clinical trials. I mean, the method generally is you take stool and you put it in a blender with some saline solution and you blend it up into a slurry that goes into an enema. 
Of course, you know, there are some pharmaceutical companies trying to move toward a pill-based version, which, you know, works off of bacterial spores. So they're turning it into more of a probiotic than the raw material. But for now, what people are generally using is the raw material. So it, it is as gross as it sounds. I performed it in the bathroom of my apartment at the time, and um, I cleaned the bathroom with bleach probably five times. So wait a minute, you did this more than once. I did. I will say that, you know, when I first heard about fecal transplant, my hope was that it would be this kind of magic bullet cure, that I would be able to do one fecal transplant and be cured of this illness forever. What I found was it took far more fecal transplants in order for me to notice a difference, and I had to kind of continue on doing them. So in total, I did about 200 fecal transplants. Oh, my goodness. Over the course of two years. After 200 or through the course of them, uh, what happened to your condition? Well, within about the first month of doing fecal transplant, I saw a really big improvement. I had gone from being, you know, my colitis was always mild to moderate. At that point, it was moderate. I was having symptoms every single day. After about 10 days of fecal transplant, I saw a major improvement, but I didn't quite get to 100% remission. After about two years, I got to 100% remission where I've remained. But, you know, like I said, it's not a magic bullet cure. We're still trying to figure out how many transplants are necessary. Another key question is, who is the best kind of donor? It's not enough to just be a healthy person. We need to understand which microbes in somebody's gut make them a good donor. What made you decide to do the documentary? When I set out to make the documentary, I was just so obsessed with this topic. I had been researching it so thoroughly. Part of me just wanted an excuse to meet the leading experts in the world on fecal transplant for my own <laughs> research. So being able to, you know, call up these researchers whose work I had been following and say, hey, can we sit down for, you know, a two-hour interview where I can just take your brain was amazing. The idea to include my own journey in the film was I felt that it needed a character-driven story arc, and mine was the easiest to capture because, <laughs> because I it was knew yours. the intimate details, <laughs> although it was a difficult decision kind of putting myself out there to the world. Okay. Saffron Cassidy, thanks so much for that. Thank you. That was Saffron Cassidy on her documentary, Designer Shit. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.